Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to jump on because we are so excited to announce that Restore Registration is officially open. We can't wait to be with you again this year. It's going to be on September 5th through 7th at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. That's the evening of September 5th and then all day on the 6th and the 7th. Three days of incredible speakers, poets, musicians, and artists. We really think that what we have planned will blow you away again this year, so you won't want to miss it. Go to faithmatters.org slash restore for tickets and we'll see you there. Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to tell you about a new book from Faith Matters Publishing. It's called Restoration by Patrick Mason. Um, When we started the Faith Matters Publishing Project, one of our goals was to explore what restoration really means as the church moves into its third century, and that's exactly what Patrick does. If you're like me and you've ever wondered how restoring Israel can be relevant to you, you've got to read this book. Patrick shows how, as members of the church, it's our mission to truly lead out in bringing wholeness and healing to the marginalized and the vulnerable. This book absolutely lit a fire for me, and it has totally changed the way I view my own engagement with the church and with the world. I really can't recommend this book strongly enough. It's the kind of book you want everyone you know to be reading too, so that you can talk about it. So you can pick up a copy for yourself or for your friends and family at Desert Book, um, Amazon, Audible, and Apple Books. Okay, that's it on the book for now, but we'll be sharing a lot more in the near future. Thanks as always, and here's the episode. Welcome to the Faith Matters Podcast. In this second episode of our mini-series we're calling Gems of the Restoration, we talk with Patrick Mason, Chair of Mormon History and Culture at Utah State University. We got to talk with Patrick about his background, his testimony and conversion, the things that get him excited about where our faith and church are headed, and things we could still do better. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Well, hi, everybody, and uh, thanks for listening. This is the uh, Faith Matters podcast. Um, I'm Tim Chavez. I'm here with my wife, Aubrey. We're going to be hosting today's conversation, and we are honored to be joined by Patrick Mason, uh, who's been on our, on our podcast before. Um, just by, by way of introduction, uh, Patrick is the Leonard J. Arrington Chair of Mormon History and Culture at Utah State University. Um, he was previously and recently the, the Howard W. Hunter Chair of Mormon Studies at Claremont Graduate University. Um, Patrick has a bachelor's degree in history from BYU, a master's degree in international peace studies from Notre Dame, and a PhD in American history also from Notre Dame. Um, Patrick is the author of several books, and I know several more are, are coming. Um, one of Patrick's uh, best known, and my personal favorite, is, is called Planted, uh, Belief in belonging, belonging in an Age of Doubt. Uh, that was published with, by Deseret Book and was also part of the Maxwell Institute's um, Living Faith series. Um, Patrick, thank you so much for being here. We're, it's a, yeah, it's, it's a pleasure great to, have to be you here. On. Good to see you guys, Tim and Aubrey. Yep. So I, I think, um, I think probably a lot of people are really familiar with Planted. That's kind of, I feel like that's become a must read in the last couple of years. If you're sort of in this world of, of, uh, of faith crisis, or if you have family or someone close to you who's kind of experiencing that. But would As you, opposed to my um, academic books, which are definitely not my friends. But could you give us a little bit of your like, a more more personal background and just um, what why why were you so interested in this subject and how did you start recognizing this as a need and and did that come up from something personal in your own life or or was this just a need that you were seeing in um, around around the students that you were working with or how did this all start? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, my my own personal background, I think, is not all that interesting. Um, I mean, I, I grew up as a, a, a Mormon kid in the Mormon suburbs of Sandy, Utah. Uh, 
you know, raised in a, a very active LDS family. Uh, my dad was my bishop when I was teenager, a teenager, that kind of thing. Um, and went, went to BYU and, and, and I had a very happy and comfortable relationship with the church, uh, and, and with my religion. I think I was probably naturally inclined towards it. Um, I think I've always been sort of like good at religion. Not that I'm like a good person. I'm just like good at religion. Right. Um, it's, it like makes sense to me at, uh, like I can do it well. It's not hard for me to sort of step into that role. Um, and, and, and that's always been the case, even from, um, from being a kid. And so I, I went to BYU, went on a mission, uh, eventually went to Notre Dame for graduate school. And, and for me, like doing this kind of thing was in many ways, like the, the furthest thing from my mind, uh, because I, I just wanted to be a historian and, and I, uh, went to graduate school to study history and to write books and that nobody would read, uh, and, and, and to do, to do those, those kinds of very important things. Um, and it was, it was really because, um, you know, Tim had mentioned, uh, the last few years that I spent at Claremont and it was while I was there at, at Claremont in Southern California that people started asking me to do firesides and because, you know, it's, it's been over the past, what, decade, decade or decade and a half, maybe, where this notion of faith crisis has, has really come up, where a lot of people have been leaving the church and, and asking them questions that, that uh, we hadn't asked before, or maybe asking them in new ways. So I started doing these firesides, and it was really through doing that and hearing people's stories. Um, so not just what I had to say, but what I was hearing back from people, um, their experiences, their pain, their what they were wrestling with, both the people who were going through faith crisis themselves, but also the people around them. I was as much touched by, you know, the parents or the siblings or the bishops, you know, who, who sort of were at a loss, didn't, didn't really know what to yeah. think, didn't know what to do, didn't know what to say, didn't want to say the wrong thing, right? Um, uh, or felt like they already had. Um, and, and so it was through all of that that I said, well, maybe I can apply some of these tools that I've learned as a historian um, and as somebody who cares a lot about the church and thinks about it a lot, and maybe I can apply some of that to, to these contemporary issues. Yeah. And has that sort of reorient, reoriented this, uh, this new reality that you find yourself in your professional and academic work as well? Or do you sort of keep that a little bit segmented? Yeah, I, I, I do try to keep them sort of segmented because I'm still committed to, uh, to, to my day job, right? And like right now, so I teach at Utah State University. It's a, it's a secular school. I'm a state employee, right? I mean, so uh, I don't do faith crisis for my day job or, or like pastoral ministry, right? Yeah. Um, and, it's, and it's no different than anybody else, right? Who owns a store or is a lawyer or whatever, right? You have your day job and, and then you do, you know, the, the things that you care about as a church member uh, on the side or you squeeze it in, you know, during your lunch hour or, or, or whatever it is. I mean, so it's, I don't think it's that different for me. I just happen to think about Mormonism all day long, um, yeah. but in a more academic context. So, so for instance, I'm, I'm working on a book right now or, you know, where I'll be looking at Ezra Taft Benson and 20th century Mormonism, that's going to be very much in a kind of historical mode. There's, there's not much pastoral aspect to that. Mm -hmm. um, so what, what the, but I am committed to continuing this kind of work. And so what it's meant is that rather than having kind of a one track professional career, and then I go to church on Sunday, like everybody else, mm -hmm. now I see myself operating really on two tracks simultaneously. Yeah, cool. that makes sense. So I'm, I'm, oh, sorry, Tim. I'm curious if, uh, if your background in history 
if you feel like that made you more resistant to your to your own personal faith crisis, or if you felt like there was ever a time where that created a little bit more vulnerability because you were exposed to things that probably, as a regular member of the church, you may not come across unless you were really intentional about it. Right. Well, I think, and, and I mentioned this uh, in Planted, is I actually never went through a really serious faith crisis of any kind. I've had lots of questions. I've still got things that I wrestle with and I'm, sh- and I'm definitely unsure about. Um, but I haven't had this kind of existential valley of, of doubt that, that so many people uh, have. And that doesn't make me any better than anybody else. And um, in, in a lot of ways, I just count myself lucky, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and maybe the, the the history part of it, maybe it did provide me with a little bit of um, inoculation or or, or, mm-hmm. or some kind of of layering there. I mean, I, as I said, I had a very normal, I think, pretty standard Mormon upbringing, and it wasn't until I went to BYU that I encountered. Mormon history in any kind of significant way. I took a, a, a class in the history department, not just in religious ed, right? But this is where we started talking about seer stones and the Mountain Meadows massacre and race and the priesthood, right? All this kind of stuff that I'd never heard about before. But it was actually because I was already wired as a historian and it was presented to me as like historical complexity. I was like, oh, I get historical complexity, right? I mean, like I do that when I study the American Revolution, or I do that when I study the Civil War, I do that when I study race relations, right? I get that good and well-meaning people can be really complicated and do really bad things, right? I mean, so like I have Brigham Young on the one hand, and I have Thomas Jefferson on the other. I I sort of get how, you know, the complexity of, of historical agency works. So maybe it was the fact that actually I did it as part of my vocation as a historian, that, that maybe insulated me a little bit um, from, from maybe a, a faith crisis that could have come during graduate school or, or something like that, but, but never really did. Yeah, I, I, think that, I think that might be true. I mean, what, what I've found in my, own, in my own faith journey is that it's very hard for me as someone that's not you know, trained in history to uh, sort of separate my own sort of presentist cultural yeah. values from what I'm reading about in the past. And what I've tried to, and I have to like actively tell myself this is like when I'm reading about history, church history or whatever kind, like we really are dealing with a culture that's almost alien to us. Yeah. Like we don't understand the things that were important to them, the way they interact with, with each other, the way they thought about deity. And we have like a whole different way of doing things. And, um, and so I think things can seem really sometimes bizarre and weird, you know, when we hear the true facts. But if you were able to, if you were able to really inject yourself into that culture, I think as you have done academically, you know, more fully than that might, as the word used is inoculate you a little bit from, you know, from some of those things. Yeah. And I think it gives you a sense that, um, I mean, I, 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 I tend to give the people around me or I try to give the people around me the benefit of the doubt, especially when I see them as three dimensional people. Right. And I, I understand that, you know, my neighbors can be great people and raise great families and do great things for my for my family and then like believe really weird things and vote differently than me. Right. But, but I still love them. Right. Um, And, uh, and as a historian, I I recognize, you know, even somebody like Abraham Lincoln, right. Argue, you know, the greatest president in the United States and uh, the emancipation proclamation, but he also suspended habeas corpus. He did a lot of other, I think he signed the first anti-polygamy bill. Maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. Um, (laughs) um, But uh, you know, but, but he, he's a complicated guy too, even like the best of the best. Right. And, and so, so then if, for me to then uh, think about, 
um, and, and probably maybe this is our own problem that we've expected and created cardboard cutouts of church leaders or um, expect something different of them than we expect of Abraham Lincoln or Thomas Jefferson or Harriet Definitely. Tubman or anybody else, right? Um, but in fact, nobody is a cardboard cutout. Everybody is three-dimensional. And so it's, it's been helpful for me. And, and, and now I'm thinking about that both as a historian, but also as, a, as somebody embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ and with the, the virtues of generosity and humility and charity and, and forgiveness and all those kinds of things and realizing that, that wait a minute, I can, I can deal with things in a little more complicated way than I did say when I was 14. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. I'm curious too, just one more question, if it's okay, kind of about your background. What, in, in terms of your own you know, personal testimony, would you say that you, I mean, was its development sort of a, I, I don't know if stereotypical is the right word, but was it a, was it a Moroni, you know, 10, three through five <laughs> type of moment? And it was like, boom, it's true. Or, or was it, which, which I think is probably now actually more common is like over time, you know, yeah. these, these things really started to resonate with you and you started to believe. Yeah. Almost, a, almost a decision. Yeah. I think it was, yeah, it, it was a combination of things. So it, mostly it was totally organic. Right. So, so today was my kid's primary program in sacrament meeting. And I sat there thinking, um, and I had like tears in my eyes and like, it's my son's last one and you know, oh, all, yeah. all these kinds of things. And I was thinking, this is so great. I mean, as I heard them singing singing songs about Jesus and talking about forgiveness and, and these, these things, I was like, this is so beautiful. Like, this is exactly what I want. These are the stories I want my kids raised on. Right. Yep. And I was raised with those kinds of stories and those kinds of songs. So it was very organic for me. And like I said, there was never a moment where um, I didn't believe. But, but there, were, there were two galvanizing sort of epiphanies for me um, that I'm actually going to write about in, in my next book. Um, one related to, to knowing that God calls prophets um, today. Uh, and it was specifically hearing uh, President Howard W. Hunter speak in general conference. And then the, the most important experience for me in my life is, is a moment in the MTC where I knew absolutely with direct revelation that Jesus is the Christ, that he's my savior and he's the son of God. Um, those are actually the only two major like spiritual epiphanies I've ever had. I've had, you know, minor ones and I feel good and I feel warm fuzzies and all those kinds of things. Um, but those are like the two moments where at least I feel like that I can identify like direct revelation from heaven. And, but it's not that I hang everything on those two moments. I'm not sure that they're enough. Those two moments are embedded in an, in an entire life, in, a, in this organic experience that I've had from, from the moment that I was born. And again, I'm lucky, I'm privileged, and, and I've had a very gentle experience with the church. Other people mm -hmm. haven't. But, but for me, it's this combination of organic growth and these galvanizing moments, both. That's beautiful. I, yeah, that makes so much sense. We, um, we kind of, yeah, thank you. We were hoping to kind of focus this, the rest of the episode on why our faith tradition is valuable now. And so I think your perspective is especially interesting because you, you really understand the decades that, that our, our church has sort of um, grown through. So would you jump in and just talk about what you, what you see as um, the, the reasons that really stand out for why our faith, faith tradition should thrive in this, in this generation and in, in, in the 21st century? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm excited. I, I, you know, so we're coming up on 
various anniversaries over the next decade. So 2020 will be the, the 200th anniversary of the first vision. 10 years later, you know, will be the anniversary of the, um, the organization of the church and then all the Moroni anniversaries in the, in, in the meantime. So, so this is going to be a pretty cool decade uh, for, for church history. And, and I think a lot of what we'll be doing, will be looking backward, right. And celebrating the origins of the restoration. That's fine. I'm, even as a historian, I'm like, I'm sort of like done with that. Like I'm, 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 I'm actually more interested in Mormonism's third century than I am in its first wow. or second centuries. Cause I actually think Mormonism's third century is going to be its best century yet. Wow. Um, so, you know, so, so you think about the first century of church history and this is, this is obviously origins. This is, this is Joseph Smith. This is Brigham Young. This is the pioneers, this incredible deposit of faith that we have, all of this theology, these revelations that are given all of this new scripture, the book of Mormon, the doctrine and covenants, pearl of great price It's incredible, right? I mean, so, so you can't, you know, it's like the first century of Christianity, which is the best century. Well, the one with Jesus in it, is <laughs> yeah, yeah. The best one, right? Okay. But so, so you can't argue with that. Um, and, the, and, and we all build and stand on the shoulders of that first generation, the, the, the first converts and the pioneers and all of that. Um, okay, incredible. Second generation, you know, but, but the thing is that we sometimes forget how tiny the church was throughout its first century. The church didn't, didn't get to the one million member mark until 1947. So um, really? well after 100 years. Uh, and so it was the second century. It's been, you know, over the past several decades that we've seen the church grow into, you know, millions of people and really become a global church, not just a Wasatch Front church or an Intermountain West church or even an American church, um, but, but increasingly become a global church and also learn what it means to like live in society, not like out in the desert somewhere, right? But, yeah. but to be part of society. Yep. And that's incredible too. So again, my generation our generation stands on the shoulders of our parents and grandparents who built the 20th century church. That's all great. But, um, but now I think the question for us in, in the restoration's third century is not what is God going to do for us, but what are we going to do for the world? I, oh. I think God has spent 200 years giving us some pretty incredible gifts um, and, and our, our ancestors have built this thing for us that we've inherited. And so now I think the question is, what are we going to do for everybody else? What are we going to do with the world? Uh, or not with the world, but for the world. And, um, and so I'm excited because I'm excited because of our theology, which I think can, can really resonate in the 21st century in ways that maybe we haven't fully captured. I think we are really well positioned now with an increasingly global membership to actually do some good around the globe. We're starting to see that with humanitarian aid and some other, you know, just a, more of a sensibility that we're actually part of things outside of Utah and outside of Cal Southern California and Northern Arizona and, you know, in a few places like that. Um, and, and just fundamentally, I, th I think the restoration, we're, this is a modern religion that, that God has given us and restored in, in the modern age. And so I think he expects us to do something with it. That's so interesting. Like, I guess I've always thought of the fact that we're a young church as a disadvantage. We don't, we right. don't have like the gravitas of like right. 2,000 years. But, but you're, I, I, get, I can see how being more flexible and, and being here while it, while it grows is something that could actually be really positive. That's and I think it's a huge advantage for us because 
the, we, we've never had to sort of shed the baggage of a pre-modern era, of a pre-modern theology, right? Uh -huh. So all of those older religions, right? Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, they've all had to figure out how do they reframe themselves for a modern world, right? Because yeah. they weren't born in a modern world. They, they were born in a, in a world before science, before democracy, you know, before the notion of the, the individual human person, the dignity of the human person. Um, and wow. Mormonism doesn't have any of those things. We came built in with a modern theology that already, and I think we've struggled with this sometimes, and actually sometimes I think we've squandered our inheritance and sort of like grasped for the respectability of pre-modern religion, which makes no sense to me, right? Yeah. But, yeah. but the, the whole point of the restoration is that God restored the church in the modern age. He chose when to do it, and he chose it in the 19th century, the century of progress, and he did it in the, the country that was going to be on the forefront of modernity. Uh, for, for, for good and for ill. And I think the restoration, the whole point is it's meant to speak to the modern age, looking forward, not looking backward. Mm, that's super interesting. Now, I guess, what are, what are some of those just high level, and I think we'll want to dive into several of these, but what are some of those things that when you say we're poised to take something valuable to the world and do something for the world, what comes, what comes immediately to mind for you? So for me, and I think we can talk about this both on a very high kind of intellectual theological level, but also in a little bit more grounded way too. So for me, when I think about what, is, what does Mormonism have, what does the restoration have to, to give to the world, I think we have to start with our theology that, that God has given us. And for me, it begins with the restoration's notion of the human person. Because it's one of the most distinctive aspects of modernity is this idea of moving away from society as the, the sort of the, the, the basic unit um, and, and the idea of, of that the individual exists to, to serve something greater uh, than that, whether it be the family or the community or the church or something like that. But one of the hallmarks of the Enlightenment is the idea that the individual is the basic unit of society. And this is why we have things like human rights. Uh, and, and things like this. And I think this is exactly what restoration theology is. The restoration reveals that we are not creatures uh, created by God, but that we are, in fact, literally, really children of God who were there with him from the beginning. So when you get rid of this idea of ex nihilo creation, when you get rid of this idea that the God was there first and we all came second and the whole purpose of our creation, which is the notion in most monotheistic religions that the purpose of our creation is to glorify God. Instead, what the restoration teaches is that God's work and glory is to glorify and exalt us. And so it actually puts the human person at the center of theology without displacing God, without knocking him off of its throne, uh, him off of his throne, but, but actually saying that his purpose, the whole point of this cosmos, look, look outside the window, the purpose for all of this is for God to bring his children back to him and to make us like him. And so it puts the human person at the center of the story, and that's exactly what modernity does. And so... Mormonism, in a way that, that I don't know that any other theology quite does, it matches up with the sensibility of the modern world, right? And so we wow. can go out. I don't think we've done this yet, 
But I think based on our theology, we can articulate a more powerful notion of the dignity of the human person than anybody else. Because the three of us on this call and every other person listening to this podcast are gods in embryo. Not just creations of God created in his image, but we are actually gods. That's pretty phenomenal. So then think about what that means when you're thinking about human trafficking. Think about what that means when you're thinking about ecological destruction and the impact on vulnerable populations. Think about what that means for, uh, for sex, sexual-based violence. Uh, think about what this means for economic equality, all kinds of, for, for democracy and the way that we interact with, you know, when you begin with the notion that the person next to you is a god, mm-hmm. right, then that should change everything. Wow. That's so huge. That is such a huge idea. I, and it's so obvious. Like, it's just right there. It's not that deep. Right, <laughs> just, right, right. I right. never really thought about it that way. Yeah. And, and also just what does that mean for our, you know, what are we responsible to stand up and do? If this, is, if this is a core belief that we have, then what does that mean about what our lives should look like and, and for the way that we try to protect each other? You're right. I mean, this isn't deep stuff. You don't need a PhD to figure this out. We teach this to the two to two year olds when we sing "I am a child of God" with them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, this this is the core of our theology. What we what we haven't done is spin it out to what that means for every aspect of our life, for our politics, our economics, our you know the way our, our gender relations, our race relations, mm. everything else. Um, so that's what we're going to do in Mormonism's third century, right? That, that's that's yeah. God's given us this gift. And now he's saying, all right, y'all, figure it out and go do something with it. That is super so, interesting. Sorry, Tim. Really, can I just ask one? I, yes, I would love one. to hear you um, just because you're in the middle of writing about previous decades. I, what does that actually look like? You know, I feel like I like the idea of this getting spun out and seeing how the church sort of develops over the next century. But what does that look like in the decade where we haven't, done it yet and and when it feels uncomfortable because it feels like we should be doing something now and i i I imagine that you've seen that pattern over and over throughout the the decades at least of the second century of growth so so what do what do you expect that to look like and what's our role to play as members not leaders that's a a great question yeah because it should always be grounded this shouldn't just be like cotton candy stuff that we're spinning and, and that's sort of ethereal, right? I mean, like, what, what, how do, what's, um, what's the traction here? So I, let me point to two things. One that the church is already doing. So I've already mentioned the church's increased commitment to humanitarian relief. Um, now, you can read that in lots of different ways. You, you can read it as an outgrowth of Christian love, uh, which it is. You can read it as an effort to build relationships and, frankly, popularity um, around the globe and to actually grease the, the wheels for potential missionary efforts, which I think that's, that's part of it, too. And, and I think that's okay, too. Um, but fundamentally, this, this is what the, the church's humanitarian efforts are all about, is because we recognize that the restoration wasn't just for us. It isn't just for like the chosen few who happen to say yes to a Mormon missionary and then all of their descendants, right? Mm -hmm. But that we have a responsibility to all of God's children. And maybe our first responsibility to them is not to give them a Book of Mormon, but to feed them. Wow, I love that. And to, um, if, if they're disabled, to give them a wheelchair, right? 
And if they are living in a leper colony to, to provide for them there. I mean, when we lived in Egypt in, in the, the branch there, we literally had a branch service project at a leper colony, right? Um, uh, talk about going back in time, right? But, but that's, that's what the restoration means to me is it is applying the gospel of Jesus Christ to the modern condition. So whatever you find that to be. So we're, and the modern condition is increasingly going to be one of humanitarian disasters um, because of climate change, because of political instability, because of all these kinds of things. So, so I think we're going to be doing more humanitarian stuff, not less. And the reason, and it should be coming out of our impulse towards uh, our fellow human beings. The same with the church's work on refugees, right? We don't see them, our analysis of a refugee is not a political analysis, it's a theological analysis that they are a child of God who are, mm-hmm. uh, who are worthy of every good thing that we can give them, just like God has given us every good thing that he could give us, right? And so um, that's, so, so I love what the church is doing, and I think we'll do more. Another thing that we'll do is I think we'll just, people will, will keep thinking about this stuff and starting to spin it out. So, so one of the books I'm, I'm finishing up right now is on uh, a peace theology within the restoration. So, so for me and, and my co-author, David Pulsifer, we've been thinking about, okay, if we have all of these theological ideas within the restoration, what does it mean when we start reflecting on questions of violence and peace, right? In, in a world of violence, in a world of, in, of instability uh, and, and violence of all kinds, direct violence, but also structural and cultural violence. What does the restoration call us to do as disciples of Jesus Christ? And do our restoration texts give us any answers there? And we think that they're full of answers that we just haven't tapped yet, right? So I, I, I think, you know, we've barely begun to skim the surface of what the restoration can do for us as we think about our place in the modern world. Wow. Ooh, that's super interesting. Yeah. I, I'm curious a little bit about that too. Um, that sort of concept that, you know, we are, we are in a world of increasing violence and potentially increasing uh, threats from climate change or whatever else is going on. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work of, um, of Stephen Pinker, mm-hmm. who is a, uh, a professor at Harvard. And he, he's written a couple of books um, that sort of take the, the premise that the world, you know, is getting better and better, you know, as, as time goes on. Um, that it is less, you know, less violent than it's ever been. And I'm not, I, I don't remember his, you know, exact position yep. on, on climate change. But I'm curious how you see that, that sort of thesis that he has versus, you know, sort of the long time uh, doctrine that we've had that as we accelerate towards the last days, you know, things are going to be getting worse and worse. Do you see us fitting in now as a church more in a world where, you know, things are pretty good and we are, you know, now respecting, you know, the dignity of the human person more than we ever have? And, you know, war, you know, that the average person is involved in is less frequent than it, right. um, than it ever was. And are we now embracing that or are we saying, no, like, are we taking the opposite view and saying, like, inevitable d- disaster sometime in the next, you know, X number of decades, but we're going to be there to help out, you know, as it, as it sort of comes on inevitably. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad you raised that. That's a, that's a really smart question. I, th- I think Pinker's research, you know, we, we should really grapple with. And basically, the argument is, as you said, that, that actually lots of indicators show that the world's getting better and better, not worse and worse, right? Um, we haven't had a World War III. Uh, the wars that we do have are smaller, they're more limited, you know, casualties, especially civilian casualties are more limited, um, uh, you know, the, uh, he talks about increasing literacy rates, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Falling poverty rates. You know, I mean, there are a lot of indicators that you could look around and see um, that, that the world is getting better. 
I think that's great. I, I don't disagree with any of those things. And I think you can look at a lot of indicators to, to show human progress and to show that there's a lot of good people, secular and religious, who are applying their creative energies to making the world a better place. So that's terrific. But there are lots of other indicators too, right? Um, and we, we know we're already beginning to see this, that um, because of climate change, because of other, because of instability of political regimes around the world, um, that even though we're not seeing the same kind of international crises that maybe we did in, in the 20th century, crises are much more local. They're also very intense for people. Mm -hmm. So we're going to see more and more famines. Um, we're we're going to see rising sea levels, displaced people, which are going to create huge waves of refugees. And we've seen what the refugee crises have done recently in the Middle East and in Europe, um, even destabilized politics here in the United States. So, so yeah, well, while certain, the way that we used to measure um, a lot of the indicators that we used to use to measure human flourishing, those things seem to be getting better. But I think the indicators are, are shifting and the world is getting worse for, for many people, even mm -hmm. while it's getting better for others. And so I, this is part of the increasing inequality that we're seeing in the 21st century around the globe. Inequality, not just of how much money you have in your pocket, but the sort of life outcomes and life opportunities that, that you're going to have. And what book of scripture talks more about inequality than any book of scripture in the world? It's the Book of Mormon, right? Mm -hmm. The Book of Mormon is the great book of scripture about inequality. It is the great prophetic critique of inequality, which means it is the scripture for our time. Mm -hmm. um, and so we may not call them Gadiant and robbers now, right? And, 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 and I'm not one for conspiracy theories and things like that. But, but the, the analysis of the inequality and what that does to the to social conditions and to the human person, um, the Book of Mormon is has such a prophetic critique about that. So it's interesting, you know, we apocalypticism sort of seems like out of favor these days, especially like religious apocalypticism. Um, but uh, and actually, interestingly, President Nelson is sort of bringing it back. Like he's, he's like, we live in the last days, you know, and we need to prepare the earth for the coming of Christ. And in some ways, that sounds a little bit out of tune, except when you listen to most secularists who actually think are the strongest apocalypticists in the world right now, speaking around climate change. I mean, all of the language of climate change is, is apocalyptic language, that unless we do X, Y, and Z, right, the world is going to end. It's going to be horrible for all these people. So I actually think that um, we may not be the only latter-day people around right now. There, there's actually a lot of people talking about the last days. Um, and what we need to do to, um, to, to hold off or to mitigate the worst, um, the worst possibilities of, of the last days that, that, that we live in. Uh, if not, then we, then we face a new age of extinction as, as, as a human species. So I, I, I think this is where the restoration is going to meet with secular thinking. And we're, we're going to partner right, right now, sort of like religion versus the secular? Well, if we're going to figure this stuff out, religious folks and secular folks are going to have to work together uh, on all of these big questions. Yeah. You know, and as someone that may, may, I may not be an optimist, but at least I'm someone that wants to be an optimist. You right. know, I, I still hope there are inflection points, you know, that we can actually affect to say like, hey, the world was going to get better, but we came together, you know, and, uh, and it, it was going to, excuse me, it was going to work, it was going to get worse and we came together to actually make it better. But I love the idea that to the extent that we don't have a handle on, on something and we are seeing uh, a 
a catastrophe of some kind. I want to be a part of an organization like you're mentioning, like this third century church that is there for the people who are most severely affected by that. And, yeah, and, and I'm not a pessimist either. I actually do think, I think part of the message of the restoration is we can make real change, right? Yeah. That, um, that the actions we uh, put out in the world have real consequences, right? Mm-hmm. And that we can scale up to do that beyond the individual. So I'm not a pessimist, um, but, I'm, but I'm a realist. Um, and, and I think that to be a Christian means that we have to enter into the suffering of others. And we have to recognize that there are billions of people in the world right now uh, whose lives are not as comfortable or secure as the three of ours. Yep. yep I, I would love to ask you, I'm curious, in, uh, when you were talking about the inequality that seems to at least be more visible now, do you think that our, um, our modern way of forming these communities is is divisive in, in when from a from a global perspective, or is that something that is um, going to help the church thrive? I, I feel like there's a there's a way to see a community as it can be exclusive and destructive to some groups. And so, is this is this a positive, or is this something that is that's hurting people? Well, you put your finger on. I mean, community is always a double edged sword. It always has the potential to do either or or both at the same time, right? Um, good for the insiders, bad for the people that they exclude, right? Or, or that oftentimes we create our identity based on opposition to somebody else's identity. Oh, yeah. um, oh, that's, I mean, that, that's, in, in some ways it's inevitable, right? Uh, I am me because I'm not you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that's partly just what it means to be sentient, <laughs> you know, and, 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 to, and to be human. But I, I think the big question for us is, how do, we, how do we create positive communities that are not predicated on othering, you know, uh, yeah. other people? How do, how do we, is that even possible? And lots of philosophers and political theorists have, have thought about this. Um, uh, so so we, partly we need to draw on the wealth of, of the world's wisdom, you know, of people who have thought about this. But I, I think um, and this is where we're going to have to transition what it means to be a Latter-day Saint, because so much of what we've built our identity uh, on over the past two centuries has been an oppositional identity, right? What's what's the language we use? It's the language of saints and Gentiles, right? Um, And we sort of joke about it, and people who live in Utah or who hang out with Mormons joke about being Gentiles, but, but that's an othering move, right? Like, we are the saints. We are literally the sanctified ones, the holy ones, and you are the, the ones that God didn't choose, um, and so is there a way that we can, I, I don't want to give up on Latter-day Saint community. I actually think it's another one of the great gifts that we have to give to the world right now in, in a world, especially in the United States and in Europe where fewer and fewer people have association with any kind of identity, mm-hmm. um, with, uh, or at least any kind of positive identity, any kind of community, right? We see more and more people who are alienated, more and more people who, who feel like they don't have any, any connection to their neighbors or to civic groups or, or to anything else. And so I think the LDS ward is an amazing positive community that can signal to people what it can mean like to take care of one another. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a way that we can scale that up again without creating an, uh, an other? Um, it's, it's tough. Uh, and I think even, you know, I'm, I'm pretty critical of, of the, the nation state in general. Um, but one of the good things about the nation state where it works at its best is as a community of care. 
So for instance, when, you know, me living in, uh, I guess at the time I was living in Indiana and a huge hurricane hits Louisiana, right? Hurricane Katrina. I don't know anybody in New Orleans. I don't know, you know, it, it doesn't affect my life at all. Why should I care that a hurricane hit anybody? But because of the nation state, I have at least this fictive community that these are my people down there. And so I'm going to donate time and money and resources to help these people who I actually have no connection with. That's a good thing. When, when the nation state works like that, um, in order to expand our moral imagination to think and care about somebody else, even though I don't have any direct connection with them, that's a good thing. Um, the church works the same way. What do I have in common with somebody who lives in Argentina or Ghana or something? Like nothing, except we're both Latter-day Saints, so I care about them. Um, so when community works like that, it's, it can be a pretty amazing thing. Yeah. Wow. I think part of it um, for me is, is just may, maybe there's a potential change in, in rhetoric and vocabulary. I, you mentioned saints versus Gentiles. Like I, and I think that I, I'm not a historian, but you know, I think that may have been more common in the last, you know, 20 to 50 years ago. And now I, but I still hear the term the world a lot to yeah. refer to everybody except us. And it's often, you know, preceded by the evils of the world or, you know, the wickedness of the world. And it just means everybody else. I, I would love it personally if when we heard the world, we thought, you know, we're a part of that. Like we are on and in, you know, this, this world. And it's a, it is a, a grander uh, community of which we're just a part. And I, like, I actually think the Book of Mormon has an interesting doctrine for this. Like there's a, there's a section where it says, you know, there are only there are only two churches, right? And I don't think that really works with the idea that, you know, there's, you know, 15, 16 million members of our church right now, and that's the one church, and then the, the church of the devil is everybody else. Like, I don't think that that could possibly be what it means, right? Like, I, I like the idea that, yeah, maybe there are two churches, there's good and there's, there's evil, but good encompasses us, or at least a part of us, and then a ton of other, and perhaps even the majority uh, or the huge majority of everybody that exists on earth that is well-intentioned and wants the best for not just themselves, but their families and for, for other people. And so that kind of makes me question yeah. if you're saying is the focus in this, in this coming third century, is it going to be uh, humanitarian oriented or, and what is the role of the missionary program? Like, are we going to have a focus on conversion? Are we saying, Hey, get baptized, join our church. Or is it going to be a shift, a gradual shift to say, Hey, like, if we're, if we're sharing back and forth, if we're caring for each other, if we are already part of a, a community, whether it's in you know, a local community or a state or a nation or a broader world, like, are we already in the same church? You know, and this is, that's how we think about it. Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a great set of questions, Tim. And, I, and so, on, um, yeah, fundamentally, what is our, our, what is our identity? It's that we're all children of God, right? Yeah. That is the positive identity right? And um, that, that every single person on this planet shares, uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't look at any other kind of difference. And, and this is Pauline teaching, right? There's no male or female or Jew or Gentile in Christ Jesus, right? And, and also the Book of Mormon talks about this. There's no manner of ites, all, all those kinds of things. You know, when, so all of the scriptures about our relationship to God, about our relationship to one another, about entering into a new creation, sort of re going back to the Garden of Eden, which, you know, is so much of the imagery of Scripture. That's what it's all about, right? Entering into that kind of identity. But I, I don't think, 
and personally, I, I don't want the church to give up on its missionary identity and its missionary uh, vocation in its third century or ever. I think a vibrant church is a missionary church um, because for, for a couple of different reasons. Um, excuse me. So uh, the, the fact is that not all people have heard the call of the restoration and uh, or have heard the name of Jesus and have come to love Jesus. And I think that's partly what we're called to do, right? We're part of Jesus Christ Church, and we're called to witness of his name and of his life and atonement to all the world. And so we want to spread that good news, right? I don't want to turn my back on that good news or hold it, you know, in, in, in some ways it would be a betrayal of the good news to, to not share it. Uh, with other people. I think we can do it in different ways than we've done it, um, uh, to be sure. But but partly also because I recognize that the world has so much need in it, and that the 16 million Mormons that there are right now, and if we actually talk about how many there really are, right, uh, you know, divide that by some kind of factor, right? But we're going to need a heck of a lot more help. Right now, a lot of it that is going to be from partnering, partnering with other people of goodwill, both religious and secular around the world. Um, but but God, but the restoration does things for people. It transforms people. It um, gives them a sense of their identity, gives them a sense of who they are as a child of God. Um, uh, I think the ordinances are powerful in terms of connecting us to God and sealing us to one another. So, so we want to keep doing and, and inviting as many people as possible to 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 partake in all of that that the church has traditionally done for the past 200 years and say, then can we layer on top of that a new kind of mission, right? Uh, a, a mission to the world that isn't just focused on getting them baptized. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. I think we have a really interesting Book of Mormon model for that too. I mean, you have Ammon going out on his yeah. mission and basically saying, I'm here to serve you. Like, tell me what to do. And, yeah. and in the end, that actually did result in conversion. Right. Yeah. But I think it seems like, um, you know, the days of I'm standing on a street corner, you know, waving scriptures and it, like, I don't, I'm not sure that that's really resonating with people anymore. Yeah. And obviously that's not exactly what our missionaries are doing, but like in the 19th century, that was what you did and people listened. And that's, that's, that's kind of where their minds were focused. They were already sort of in that mode of thinking about, you know, what, uh, what church should I join? I mean, Joseph Smith was, was there. Right. And and yeah. so they were actively thinking about that. I'm not sure that's top of mind for a lot of people right. these days, but these issues of, like you're saying, um, of human dignity and equality and, uh, you know, economics and natural disasters or refugee crises or whatever it is, those things are top of mind. And so, like, if we can meet people where they are, then I think that might end up uh, with, a, with a more powerful missionary program. Yes, we, we've got to know what their questions are, right? The, 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 our problem of our missionary program over the past few decades is that we've, we've gone to the world with our questions. It's, it's been like a game of Jeopardy, actually, is that our missionaries show up with a bunch of answers, and then we try to get people to guess what the question is. <laughs> That's so right? true. Um, yeah. And uh, we need to flip that script uh, and actually figure out what other people's questions are, and then we have to do our homework to figure out how does the restoration answer that. Now, I'm convinced that the restoration has answers. Uh, some of those things, we're, we, we don't know what the answers are yet, and that's why we need more revelation. That's why it's an ongoing restoration. But I'm convinced that God is working in the world through the restoration and that he wants the, the restoration to be able to answer people's questions. So if, if people's questions are around 
issues of ecological justice. If if people's questions are around uh, questions of um, you know, how do I raise my family in broken communities, right? Uh, that don't provide any social services, right? If people's questions are around uh, how do we deal with new waves of refugees, people who don't speak our language and don't, you know, don't have our traditions and cultures, what does the restoration have to say about that? So it's going to be a whole new set of questions, and a lot of them are still going to be individually based. Not We've been talking about the social and political, but still in the human heart, right? I mean, depression, and mental illness and brokenness, that doesn't change, right? I mean, fundamentally, that's the human condition. And this is why we bring Jesus to people on an individual level, is to heal their brokenness. Um, and then, mm-hmm. so that then, and, and maybe we say, one of the ways that you heal your brokenness is by helping other people hear that, heal their brokenness too. Yeah. And that's why we do it in community. That's super interesting. I think it's, I think it's important, just this occurred to me as, we were, as you were talking about this, like, to not, and as I was doing sort of in my last comment, to put people in boxes and say, this is what people care about now. Like, it, it is individually based. And that's sort of, like you're saying, at the root of our theology is everything is, is individual based. And so maybe the key skill that we need to, to develop institutionally is the skill to listen, right? And, yeah. and really go out and, and understand what each individual that we're talking to is, is thinking about and feeling and, and caring about. I've, I've thought about this, you know, in the years since my mission, like, I, I wish I could go out, you know, as a 35-year-old now in some ways and be like, okay, I've learned a lot more than I, than I knew as a 19-year-old. And I think the biggest change that I would make right now is when I went into people's homes for the first discussion or the first lesson, I would just say, hey, you know, tell me about yourself and just listen. And I think that would, I, I think that perspective, I mean, you could make the argument that it doesn't, maybe it doesn't result in as many conversions and many baptisms in it. So we have to, um, you know, we have to figure out what our, key performance indicators are, but, <laughs> um, but I think it would really help us, you know, meet people where they are. Yeah. I, I would love to hear you address that specifically. I, I, I think maybe um, this idea of, of having all of the truth, we have all the truth, that feels like it sort of has morphed over time. And I love, um, I feel like the way Joseph Smith talked about truth felt that really does resonate with me. This idea that we're just gathering truth wherever we can find it. And anyone who has it is just bring it all in. And I just, that feels so good. I love that the idea of sitting and listening to somebody to find out how they connect to God and how can I, how can that help me to connect to God better? And instead of like, let me teach you because I have it all already. And so, you know, not, not just listening to find out what they need, but listening to find out what I, what they have that I might need. Right. You know? yep. So do you see, um, do you see that, do you see that change first of all? And how do you think that would affect our missionary program? Yeah, I, I, I do see it. And and so you're, you're exactly right. It would be going back to, to what Joseph Smith and Brigham Young originally thought that Mormonism was, right? That they, they were um, capacious in terms of thinking about Mormonism as all truth, wherever it came from. Now, you could say that there's a kind of colonizing impulse there. It's like, oh, Einstein. Oh, that's ours, too. We're going to take that, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, you yeah. could say, you know, um, but, but, but I don't think it's colonizing for our sake. It's, it's, this is actually glorifying God for the fact that, that he sheds his light and knowledge on all of his children. Guess what? He doesn't only love 16 million of his billions and billions of children, right? He loves all of yeah. them. And yeah. he sheds his light and grace on all of them. And so... Again, going back to this theology of every single one of us being God's in embryo, 
every single one of us having some kind of special spark or gift given to us from God, then of course I would want to listen to somebody else and figure out what gift they have to give me, right? Yeah. And so, yeah. Tim, you had talked about the way we've talked about the world, and and I think you're exactly right. I, I, I've tried to flip it. Like, when I hear the world, I get excited because you know what the world has? The world has Shakespeare. And, the, you know, the, 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 the world has Einstein. And, and, and the world has Mary Wollstonecraft, you know. And the, the, the world has all of these different things to teach me. Mm-hmm. And my, for me, the exciting journey as an adult has been encountering the best of the wisdom of the world and figuring out how that integrates with the best of what the restoration has to offer me and and hearing God's voice by blending those things together rather than putting them at odds with one another. Wow. Yeah, I love that. Are there, um, you know, when you were talking about older churches needing to shed, you know, hundreds of years of of baggage. I feel I, w- I was thinking, okay, I guess it's small potatoes. You know, we have, we're, de- we're dealing with 19th century, which is close enough that, you know, a, a great grandparent could have known a great grandchild right. or something, right. you know, like it's right. so close, but I also feel like at the same time, it's, it's just unfathomable to me. I just can't understand the things they, they chose to accept and, and deal with. And it was, you know, it, we're only talking about a, a few centuries. So, so are there things that you see that are, you feel like are maybe leftover cultural issues from the 19th century that we're still trying to make work that aren't really working? Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I think we, um, yeah, we, we may not have millennia of baggage, but we've got two centuries of baggage and, and that's enough. Um, uh, and and our, our bags are full just from those 200 years. And, and, and I'd identify, I don't know, a handful of things that we've picked up along the way that, um, Again, because we're fallible human beings acting in history, it's perfectly natural that we picked up some of these things along the way. But I don't think we had to, and I don't think the restoration has to hold on to them. So I'd identify a few of them. One would be racism, of course. Um, 19th century was an amazing century for lots of different reasons, but it was also a horrible century if you were not white um, uh, in the United States and in many places around the world. And, and the restoration, unfortunately, the restored church picked up on a lot of those racial ideologies and then clothed them in theology and um, clothed them in prophetic pronouncements and in prophetic authority. And, and we know what that did um, in and, and, and to the church, especially um, to, to people of African descent in terms of the, the priesthood and temple ban. And so it took us a long time to begin to shed that baggage uh, we haven't fully yet. Um, yeah. I, th- I think sometimes as white members of the church, we'd, we'd like to think that things got solved back in 1978. Um, but if you talk to, to a lot of people of color within the church, they'll let you know that there's still uh, plenty of issues uh, within the church. So, so I, I, think we, I think we need to work on that. I think we uh, picked up some baggage of patriarchy. Uh, the 19th century was also a um, and every, uh, every century before it was also a patriarchal yeah. <laughs> uh, century. And, but we, we did a particular kind of Mormon patriarchy that was attached to polygamy uh, specifically, um, also to connected to notions of priesthood. And, and so I think we are still now 
trying to unpack that bag and look through that suitcase and figure out like which parts of it were came from the culture, which parts of it seemed to come from God, what does God want for the relationship of the genders. I'm pretty sure it's not a lot of the things that were taught in the 19th century. And so we, we have to reimagine now what God wants for relationships between men and women. I think we, at the end of the 19th century, I think we picked up some baggage of nationalism. We, mm. for the first few decades of the church, we kept the nation at bay, um, uh, largely because of polygamy, actually, you know, the, the, the conflict between the, the church and the nation. But, but we recognize that in the modern world, you have to make peace with the nation or else your life is going to be pretty miserable. And we not only made peace with the nation, but we embraced it wholesale. And, um, and I think uh, th- th- this is, my thoughts on these matters are probably uh, controversial to, to a lot of people because I am a critic of the nation state. I don't go in for a lot of the patriotic displays uh, mm-hmm. that we have. I'm not sure that it's commensurate with being uh, a member of Christ's kingdom, uh, which is where I feel like my first loyalties are. Um, but I think especially some of the excesses of our allegiance to the nation state or maybe some things that we could, uh, you know, sort of revisit. I'd also look at the way that we have really um, embraced capitalism, market capitalism. And I know this is also not going to be popular with a lot of people. Um, but the 19th century church actually, you know, what, what was our economic vision in the first few decades? It was one of consecration. Right. And it was one um, in which we recognized that the way that we organize our economies in this world are not the ways that God really wants us to relate to one another in the economic sphere. Um, Sometimes we do it because we feel like out of necessity or because we can't imagine anything better. Um, But um, but now I think over the past hundred years, we've sort of baptized market capitalism um, and pretend like that's actually the way the kingdom of God works. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that's true. Uh, and, and so I, I think we've, I think we have picked up some baggage along the way. And I think, I think we've got to reexamine some of these things, including maybe, um, I think we're getting better on this score. I think in the 20th century, we picked up some anti-scientific views, um, that were not there at the beginning, but that then developed over time. I think we're doing better on that score in terms of not doing a kind of fundamentalist uh, approach to science, but actually recognizing that we can reconcile the best of modern science with the restoration. So these are all things, you know, but I'm sure there are things right now that when somebody's doing a podcast uh, 200 years from now, that, uh, that they're going to look back and say, look at all the crap that Mason was teaching, right? I mean, he was so blind to his own culture, right? I mean, he, he like, what was he saying, right? Um, that's, we, we can't even see it because we're swimming in it. So I, I would love, yeah, I was thinking that same thing. Like, how, how do you see it? I mean, I, I, I love that you're really comfortable just saying this, it was just a mistake. We don't have to make all of these, all of these issues like racism, even in the Book of Mormon, we don't have to make that feel right anymore. But, but how do you, how do you know if it's just you and your culture or if it, I mean, I I feel like you've got scripture, you've got modern prophets, you've got your conscience. And so what do you, what do you listen to personally? Is it, is it just this resonates with me? And so I'm going to run with it or this doesn't. So I, I mean, I trust that something's wrong or is there some sort of triangulation process? Cause I feel like 
especially with the racism example. I mean, you had you, you the you have it in the scriptures. You have the um, what did you say the the clothed in prophetic statements. I mean, if if you're if you're living in that time and you're feeling uncomfortable about about the position of the church, what is there to do? Just you know, how do you know if you're just a product of your culture or if God is telling you there's something off here? And and then what are you supposed to do with that? Yeah, well, that right there is like the billion dollar <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. question, right? <laughs> um, uh, which you should then give to the poor if you get the billion dollars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but um, so I, I think what you, I think you put your finger on it exactly, Aubrey. So first, it's, so you, it, it's a matter of what are the sources of authority. It's, it's, an, it's a question of epistemology and how do we come up with values. And at least within the restoration, I think you're exactly right. We have sort of four source, four primary sources of authority that would be uh, modern prophets, script, canonized scripture, the whisperings of the Holy Ghost, revelation from the Holy Ghost, and then personal conscience, right? Which might be the same as the Holy mm-hmm. Ghost, but also might, might be a little bit different, right? Mm-hmm. And I think, how do we know what's right? How do we know what to do? I think largely it is a matter of triangulation. I, I think that word you used, it's, it's, it's exactly the word that, that, that I use and think about when I think about this. And, and so how many, how do I know if something is right? Well, how many so- sources of authority can I line up behind it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but even that is not going to be good enough because I could point to lots of examples in the past of things that I think we now regret where you could probably line up a lot of sources of authority behind them. And so for me, there has to be an overarching principle. There has to be an overriding sort of guide that uh, in in which you interpret all of those other things. And for me, um, you know, I mean, that's sort of fancy way to say it is, is what is your hermeneutic or what is your overriding interpretive principle? For me, I think we have that. And his name is Jesus. And uh, now I know it's not that simple because actually my understandings of Jesus come through all of those other sources of authority, right? How do I know about Jesus? It's because of what the scriptures have told me or what about prophets. <laughs> That's why you're writing the prophet book. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So, so <laughs> okay. it, in, in some ways, this, this thing, it's, it's sort of, you know, turtles all the way down. But I actually, I feel like for myself, and I don't want to impose this on any, anybody else, but for myself, I feel like I know enough about Jesus and I know enough about the revelation of God to the world through his son, Jesus Christ, that it can be a very strong principle in, in which I judge and critique all the other sources of authority, right? Wow. So how do I know that Brigham Young's teachings on race were incorrect? I can come up with lots of different historical reasons and I can line up some scriptures on one side and some scriptures on another side, but fundamentally those teachings violate what I understand about the relationship of God and humans and humans with one another because of the revelation of God through Jesus. Right. And so now does Jesus answer all of our questions? I think yes in a way, but also not no, you know, because we only have four gospels, right? And and then some other things. So, but but still, I think if we're going to be Christians, if we're going to be the church of Jesus Christ, we have to say that Jesus is our overall hermeneutic and then figure out what that means. That it's it's one of the reasons why I'm a pacifist. Um I I I think there are many good reasons um that that the people marshal uh 
for, you know, for just war and for other kinds of things. Uh, at the end of the day, when I look at the question through the bright light of Jesus, um, I don't think he gives us a whole lot of wiggle room. Now, I'm writing an entire book about this, and, and so I think, I think it's complex. I don't think it's, it's a simple black and white, uh, and I think God meets us in our weakness. Um, but fundamentally, I have to answer that question through how I, what I believe God has revealed to us through his son. Can you, can you address specifically the prophet can't lead the church astray? <laughs> because that's the that's the thing like I I feel like for me it always comes back to that like it feels safer to just say I don't have to wrestle with this because the prophet can't lead the church astray and and I feel like you know it's easier to just want to have confidence that in 1970 the church was in perfect alignment with God's will and and it's uncomfortable to have to to say there's you know maybe there's something bigger here that I do have to wrestle with because because this doesn't feel like it's in harmony with what Christ taught. And so how do you, how do you personally, I don't know, do you, do you, do you think that it's just our understanding of, you know, we've just sort of adopted this understanding that even though prophets are, we say they're infallible, except for in these very specific times, and then they can't make a mistake. And so you just trust them or, you know, how do we get into this mess where we just, we feel like we can't, we can't uh, disagree. Yeah, so um, so I actually think there's probably three or four different strands uh, there, okay. that, uh, and then maybe I won't unpack all of them. Okay. But but uh, so, so I'll I'll just uh, attack a couple of aspects of that. So so one is that um, we we simply have to dispense of the notion that the church in any way is or is an approximation of perfection. Um. It's not. It never has been. And uh, in our lifetimes and in the foreseeable future, probably until the return of Jesus, uh, it won't be. And it's not just because, you know, sometimes we, we give the answer, which I think is true. Well, it's because of, it's full of imperfect people. Yes. Okay. So, that, so that's true. But it's also because um, it's because of the veil, right? I mean, we, uh, we see through a glass darkly and the church sees th- through a glass darkly. And um, uh, I think prophets are a great gift that God has given the church in order to part the veil slightly, right? Um, to sort of peek through the door. Maybe we open the door a little bit more uh, at, at, at times, but the door is never wide open. And that's, that is the purpose of mortality. So again, go back to the, the whole notion of the plan of salvation. It's, it's to live absent of God's presence and full knowledge. And so that means the church is always going to be stumbling in some degree of darkness and some degree of light. And we know this because, I mean, the church, because God has at many times throughout the history of the church called it to repentance, not just, not just called individual people to repentance, but called the whole church to repentance. It's even built into the doctrine of covenants, right? Like, um, you know, uh, your minds have been darkened. The church is under condemnation for neglecting the Book of Mormon. He said that back in the 1830s. And then Ezra Benson had to say it 150 years later, right? And call us back to the Book of Mormon, citing that same prophecy from the 1830s. So what does that mean? Does that mean the church was in darkness and was under condemnation and not true for 150 years until we picked up the Book of Mormon? Yes. 
and no, right? I mean, yes, we were under condemnation. Yes, we weren't doing everything that God, you know, was asking us to do. But guess what? He still loved us, and through his grace and mercy, he w- we were still his people. We were still his church, and he was still loving us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, every person, every parent who's ever had a child understands this dynamic, right? Your kid's a total screw-up, and you love the heck out of them, right? <laughs> that, is, that is how God feels about the church. And, um, and so the, the notion that the prophets can't lead the church astray, I, I take that as, as um, a testimony of God's loving care because he it's it's his church again and actually this is what i love what president nelson has reminded us of this was never mormon's church it was never joseph smith's church it was never brigham young's church it was never moses's church it was always god's work in the world um, of which the church is one aspect not all of it but it's one aspect of it so how could the prophet distance us from god's love and from god's work and from god's mission right? I mean, that's, that's what the Apostle Paul said. How, how could we be separated from the love of God? What in this world could separate us from the love of God? Yeah. A prophet who teaches something wrong? No, of course oh not. Are you You're kidding? blowing my mind. That's right? so, I love, yeah, so, I love that. So, I love it. So, 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 so again, it's, it's to, to, to even entertain the question that the whole train could go off the rails because of what a, a single conductor or ticket taker or even an engineer could do, right, um, is a form of prophetolatry, right? Because it's saying the story is about the prophet instead of the story being a love affair between God and his children. I, that, I just, I love that. I've never thought about it like that. I just, that feels so good to me. I love it. No good. Right. <laughs> Thank you. Had that question for like eleven years. Right. I mean, this, you know, one of the chapters in Planted is is called "Abide in the Vine," and the whole message there is like we have to connect everything back through Jesus, right? And we know this. We we talk about it in the church all the time, right? Um, but but when you actually start doing that, <laughs> when you think that wait a minute, this whole story is about Jesus and His reconciliation and redemption of the world then that's, that's going to change a lot of, of the way we talk about things. Because otherwise, we put ourselves at the center of the story mm-hmm. uh, instead of putting God and his work and Jesus' love for each of us at, at the center of the story. So, and, and in fact, it is, I talk about a love affair. It is, it's actually all of us together at the center of the story. It's God and me. It's Jesus and you at the center of the story. Um, it's, it's, it's a love affair and, and, uh, that's, that's what scriptures are. That's what the gospel is. Wow. That's, that's just awesome. Beautifully put. Yeah. Um, so Patrick, I know we've, we've taken a bunch of your time already, maybe just to close really quickly, um, on this topic, I would wonder if you can just point to one thing, maybe I know the church has obviously been going through a period of rapid change, you know, in the past, just couple of years, really since president Nelson became president of the church. Um, and obviously there were changes before that as well, but like, it feels like we're in this moment of, of really, really quick evolution. that's potentially different than what we've seen over the last 30 to 40 years. Like, what are you seeing now either in, in, you know, some of those changes or like just really practically in the church that we're doing now that makes, 
that makes you optimistic for the future? So the thing that um, galvanized a lot of my thinking around this recently has been the announcement of the new uh, program for youth, um, which, so like, because I'm just like naturally snarky uh, about things at first, I was like, I was like, we're just doing the same thing. We're just like, <laughs> not, we're calling it something different and we're getting rid of merit badges. Right. You know? Um, so, you know, uh, but the more I thought about it and, and tried to get rid of, you know, <laughs> of my own cynicism, um, I realized actually there's something really beautiful and profound going on here, or, or at least has the potential to. And, and as with anything, you know, it could either go well or, or not go well, depending on what we do with it. But what I see here is that every generation or two has to rediscover the gospel for themselves. You know, this is what we've been talking about, right? That 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 um, our our problem. I actually, um, after this last general conference, it sort of just dawned on me. I'm like, you know what? The the church, like institutionally, programmatically, has sort of been in a rut for most of my lifetime, wow. right? Like it's basically been the same. We've been doing the same things over and over and over again. We all got very comfortable with this, right? And then we handed it down to our kids and, and, and so forth. And we anticipated that this was the way it was always going to be. But it was in a little bit of a rut. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Obviously, it was doing a lot of good things. It created, you know, a lot of good people, a lot of good Christians. It did a lot of good things along the way, right? But, but, but it had sort of stopped asking that question of what does the gospel mean for a new generation? And I think that's exactly what, I mean, amazingly, it took a 95-year-old prophet, yeah. right, to say, to, to sort of um, raise this question again and, and to force it back on the church and to say, you know what, you all have to figure out what the gospel means for you. Mm -hmm. So you got to figure it out through your study. This is what Come Follow Me is all about. Go back to the scriptures. Um, now, I know they've given us some guide and leading questions because they just can't get rid of correlation. They can't <laughs> let go of that, right? But the basic principle is go back to the scriptures and figure out what the restoration means for you and your family. And then youth, what does the gospel mean to you? You guys take charge, right? Yeah, you're going to have some adult leaders in the room. and They're going to make sure you don't like just talk about, you know, Harry Potter or whatever it is <laughs> you guys really want to talk about, right? But, um, but what does the gospel mean for you? And if this works, I mean, if, if people really own this, it means that a new generation is going to rediscover the restoration for themselves. Ooh. And they're going to do something with it that I can't predict. Um, and the President Nelson can't predict, right? And what I love about that is, is he's, he's sort of letting go and he's saying, it's not my church, it's God's church. And I'm going to let God talk to these young people and tell them what he wants them to do with the restoration. Now, if, if that's what we can do through this youth program, it's great. So, so maybe like everything else, Gen X is the forgotten generation, right? I mean, it's like everything was about the boomers and then millennials and like us, you know, like, uh, so what, right? Um, that's okay. If my job was simply to be a transition generation, right? I, I, and, and to give birth to the generation that's actually going to do something with the church, that's fine. I can live with that. Um, and, but I actually, I see the spirit moving on the waters and um, I see a new creation happening within the church and uh i have no idea what it's going to look like but i'm excited to see what might happen wow. that's awesome 
Thanks so Thank much. Thank you. Man, really that exciting. was amazing. Yeah. Yeah, thanks guys. Yeah. Thanks for the great conversation. Great questions. Yeah. And Patrick, before we before we sign off, is um is there any for any of our listeners like is there work that you've done that you would want to point them to? Are you active on social media? Anything you want to just plug while you're here? Yeah, so we've talked about my book, Planted, which is probably the most relevant one uh, for, for most church members. Um, so Planted, Belief and Belonging in an Age of Doubt. Um, and then I'm on Twitter. I'm at Patrick Q. Mason. I tweet mostly Mormon stuff, um, uh, but very occasionally. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, and I've always got new projects coming up or I blog or podcast here, here or there. Um, so uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm around. Okay. Well, this was just a wonderful conversation. You're always super insightful. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks, Tim and Aubrey. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to this episode, and we hope you enjoyed it. If you want to support Faith Matters, we'd love for you to subscribe to this podcast, like our Facebook page, or subscribe to our YouTube channel. We'd also love a rating on Apple Podcasts or a thumbs up on YouTube if you feel so inclined. Thanks so much for listening. And as always, you can check out more at faithmatters.org.